The following is a conversation between Matt Dunn, founder and executive director of the Center on Rural Innovation, and Denver Frederick, the host of the Business of Giving. The Center on Rural Innovation is an action tank dedicated to addressing the challenges of rural American economies. Those challenges have become significantly more difficult as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also present a set of opportunities to address longstanding issues. And here to discuss this with us is Matt Dunn, the founder and executive director of the Center on Rural Innovation. Welcome to the Business of Giving, Matt. Thanks, Denver. You know, share with us the mission and objectives of the organization that you founded. Sure. So the Center on Rural Innovation was created in, in 2017 to try to address the rural opportunity gap. As many of your listeners will know, in 2008, when the recession hit, something happened that hadn't happened in our country before, which was a recovery that was fundamentally different in urban and rural places. Urban places came rocketing back up to exceed their pre-recession economic performance levels, and rural areas did not. And in fact, in some ways, continued to even decline from the low point. So we decided to take on that particular challenge. My background is that I grew up in a rural community that was based on machine tool and dairy until it wasn't. I got involved in politics at a young age, working on policies around inclusive economic development and rural, as well as helping to build a software company in rural Vermont and showing that that actually can be done. I then served in the Clinton administration, heading up the AmeriCorps VISTA program, came back two terms in the state Senate while working at Dartmouth College, trying to unleash a community of change agents from that institution, and then was recruited by Google to head up community affairs for the company. They tried to get me to move to Mountain View, California. I refused. Uh, they eventually caved and we opened an office in White River Junction, Vermont. So was able to experience what it's like to be able to engage in jobs of the future and economic growth in different ways, all from a rural context. Mm -hmm. And that's important because if you look at the causes of the rural opportunity gap, it fits into three buckets. One is the automation of traditionally rural jobs. The second is globalization, both through policy and through technology, allowing for companies to look at lower cost labor markets anywhere in the world, not just lower cost labor markets in, in rural America. And the third was the decline of entrepreneurship, which has been falling for 30 years, much faster in rural places than in urban. And when you have then an economic shock like 2008, all of that accelerates. So we ended up with a decline in economic opportunity, a decline in agency for communities to have control over their economic future, and a real economic crisis in rural America. So we've uh, built the organization with this early support of Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, as well as others, to be able to hit that issue head on and to create uh, digital economy jobs and entrepreneurship in small town America. Mm -hmm. Some great background there. And we're going to delve into some of those issues in a moment. Looking at the current situation, I think about maybe 15% of people live in rural areas. I guess it's going to depend on where you're located, but how significant an issue is the COVID-19 pandemic now in rural America? 
it's very significant and it fits into a couple of areas. One is the overwhelming of hospitals that can take place, even in smaller communities, because rural hospitals have been closing at a rapid rate over the last 10 years. Over 230 of them have been shuttered, and that takes its toll in the immediate term. But when you suddenly have a pandemic and you have a member of a shift that gets sick, the usual practice is to have that shift go into quarantine for two weeks to try to make sure that people are not infected who are there. The problem is if there's only one shift at the hospital, Mm -hmm. suddenly you have no healthcare resources in those locations. And so the healthcare issue in and of itself is a big deal in rural. But the other is that the employment risk in rural areas is higher than in urban. The kinds of jobs that are currently employing people in rural places are ones that are difficult to do in a remote way and are dependent on industries that have been shut down altogether, including things like tourism. So the actual economic impact in small communities that were already struggling economically is even more severe. And with the delayed infection rates in rural places that just are getting hit later than in urban, that can be really devastating for the long term. You add to that some interesting nuances like second homes. Folks in urban places have decided maybe they don't want to be cheek by jowl with lots of other people that might be infected. And if they have the privilege of having a second home or a camp, they're getting out of the city and going to those places. The problem is that just exacerbates the impact on an already limited healthcare infrastructure that's available in those rural communities and can complicate things even further. An awful lot of stress on the system. I can sure hear that. We know there are a number of factors that are connected to this coronavirus. Two of them would be the age of a person, and the other would be their underlying health conditions. Is there an overall sense of what rural America is like as it relates to those two factors? Well, it's not good. In both cases, rural people are older and they have more complicated health issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those are certainly correlated and related to one another, but it leads to an additional risk factor that makes the need for engaging health services go up dramatically. You also have situations where transportation is much more complicated. So if you are needing to have uh, medical attention more quickly, it's many times harder to be able to access that. Mm -hmm. So there is definitely a health factor as well as a a overwhelming of infrastructure factor. And this was the work that we did with Stat News and New Lab to create a preparedness index for rural places. We put this together three weeks ago. Uh, when the pandemic had not started to accelerate in rural places to try to help first responders and policymakers and folks with resources to look a little bit around the corner and hopefully anticipate where those spikes could take place. And the socioeconomic status as well as those health conditions are very much a part of that index for just the reasons that you mentioned. 
Yeah. You know, a real central issue here, Matt, that maybe some listeners are asking about or thinking about is telehealth. I mean, why isn't that not being employed? And of course, that is the center of not only of some of the challenges we have with this pandemic, but in a lot of other ways as well. Speak to that if you would. Well, the promise of telehealth is great, and it's particularly great in rural areas that are struggling to be able to have the healthcare resources that they need, but you've got to have broadband connectivity. Unfortunately, we have not that in America, where despite being the richest, most powerful nation in the history of the world, we do not have universal broadband. And the impact of that is really being laid bare in this pandemic. And it certainly hits in a healthcare scenario. There is plenty of ways where vulnerable older people could be able to do their checkups and connect with their healthcare providers using very inexpensive netbooks and uh, a connection. But if you don't have that connectivity, you are forced to go into hospitals and clinics, which is where there's a very high likelihood of contracting the virus because that's where people with the virus are going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you're also seeing it, though, play out in access to education resources. Oh, I'm thinking about all the homeschooling that's not going on. Absolutely. And you've got superintendents and educators who are facing a really awful choice, which is to whether or not to deploy a robust interactive curriculum that is available now. The technology is all there. The content is there. Teachers understand how to use that, but they know that inherently they will be unequal in who can actually access that. Mm-hmm. And the concept of a public education is to provide equitable access to learning. They feel they can't even deploy that because they would inherently be picking winners and losers or asking some kids to go sit in cars outside of libraries and get Wi-Fi through the windows for five or six hours a day. And that's yeah. not really a solution either. No. Uh, and the other Especially area- the library's closed. Right, exactly. But literally the recommendation that people are making is, oh, well, we'll put repeaters on the outside of libraries and schools and other common places and they can just sit out in a car and do the work well that's not really a solution for the long term rural people have been doing that for quite some time as they've tried to work on weekends away from the office and don't have broadband to their home but this is not a solution for educating our young people into the future and then the other area that broadband really affects is the ability to work remotely people are being asked to stay home and are fortunate enough to have a job that they could do in a distributed way, if you don't have the broadband to be able to do video conferencing or move large files, you are significantly hindered in being able to be successful in achieving that from your home. So why do you think, Matt, the promise of universal broadband has been so elusive? Is it political will? Is it money? What is it? I have to say, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm a recovering politician, I do believe it's political will. There are a lot of entrenched interests that don't like the idea of competition for the services that they provide now. They've had that kind of monopolistic hold for a long time and haven't had to do improvements because they're the only game in town. And that leads to a lot of complicated policies that are not helpful for building uh, broadband in the way that it should be done. But if there was ever a moment 
where the political will should be there to be able to overcome those forces, this is it. When we saw the impact of the Great Depression, one of the responses was rural electrification. And it wasn't a small little incremental project. It was actually building out the kind of infrastructure to allow for everyone in the country to have access to electricity. And they did it in a way that actually built out robust and scalable electricity. They did not give out grants to allow people to have little water wheels or small windmills on their barns. They actually built the infrastructure to be able to deliver and scale the kind of electricity to allow people to be successful either in their small business, on their farm, or from their home. And that unlocked just a huge potential of rural America. And to me, this is no different. Uh, and it means that we can't do this by investing in the kinds of broadband solutions that are not going to be relevant in five or 10 years. And that fits into the category of just expanding marginal DSL or cable or some of these wireless solutions that don't actually deliver fast upload speeds. You can receive content pretty quickly, but in today's world, if you're talking about telehealth or remote learning or remote work, you need to have broadband speeds that go in both directions so that you can be interactive. And that really only comes with building out fiber to the home yeah. that can scale up to gigabit speed internet. And that's what we're going to need to have in order to make sure that the investment we make is future-proof. Mm -hmm. The other good news on that front is that rural communities across the country have in their own scrappy way develop models for doing it. We have in our network of 20 communities, 11 different models of being able to build out fiber to the home that's future-proof and providing faster internet speeds than you can get in San Francisco or most of New York City. Yeah. So it's doable. We just need to have the political will to ensure that things like pole attachment laws allow people to come in and build that kind of infrastructure, to allow for municipal electric companies and cooperatives to be able to participate in delivering broadband to their constituents in the same way that it was those kinds of public or quasi-public entities that brought electricity when the natural competitive marketplace wouldn't bring it in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So these are the kinds of changes that have to happen along with the funding to be able to just go and build it once and for all. Mm -hmm. um, we certainly seem to have plenty of dollars to be able to invest in businesses and other kinds of relief. The potential for building out fiber to the home and to actually create universal broadband in this country is right here in front of us. We just need to take action. Yeah, they can't use the excuse of not having enough money because you hear trillions here and there. So they use that when they want to. And you're in Vermont, right? So you're probably, if I'm correct, maybe better prepared than many of the other rural areas around the country, places like Vermont, New Hampshire, maybe some places in the Midwest too. Yeah, we're in, in pretty good shape. It varies from region to region. We certainly have healthcare systems that have been under serious stress. We do a lot of work in Springfield, Vermont, and their hospital that has been around for over a century is in bankruptcy right now. And that's a tough 
place to be when you get hit with a, a pandemic and an impact like this. So we're not without our, our challenges. Interestingly, on the broadband front, very early on, we put in place progressive laws around allowing people to do pole attachments and to build out fiber to the home and did small investments and helping get through the pre-development phase so that telecommunication union districts could actually form and allow for collaboration between municipalities to build that kind of infrastructure. And as a result, we have large swaths of rural places that have fiber to the home and has made this transition easier. Mm -hmm. There are still large parts that are dealing with satellite and terrible DSL and are very cut off from the rest of the economy, education system, and yeah. health care system. So I think we are in better shape than some places, but that is not to say that we are not being impacted. And we also have a large second home community, mostly from New York and Boston, that has increased the population during a time when we don't usually see that kind of spike. That's right. And it's also created some tensions coming into the summer as the governor has encouraged people not to come and stay in Vermont, shut down Airbnb rentals. Mm -hmm. And we do have a dependency on tourism here for a large chunk of our economy. And that chunk is basically closed down right now yeah. as we head into the summer, which is actually a much more robust tourism season for us than uh, winter. Yeah, for sure. What have you found to be the keys of being an effective leader in a crisis, Matt? And do you believe that your leadership is going to change in any way as a result of this pandemic? I think the key to being a leader in times like this is to take a step back, understand the assets that your organization has, and figure out how you can deploy those assets to be as helpful as possible. And that's why uh, a month ago, we realized that the data and mapping work that we had been doing for two years focused on helping both communities and policy makers, philanthropists, and investors understand where there are opportunities and gaps in rural economies could really be purposed to helping understand the conditions on the ground and the risks for responding to the COVID-19 crisis. And that's why we engaged with Stat News and, and New Lab to create that preparedness index and then to work with existing data sets to be able to create a employment risk index as well. And it's because we had data that was uniquely robust in rural places. Lots of entities have data of that kind for urban, it's a much more profitable place to be, but we felt there was an imperative to pivot and to use those resources and those assets to be able to make that data available for people to make decisions. Yeah, these are and, wonderful maps. They really are. You know, and so many organizations use data like this to measure change. And this is using data to drive change. And I would be curious as to the impact that it has had so far, because when I talk to people about an inclusive recovery, and everybody's talking about this time, unlike 2008, we have to have an inclusive, equitable, diverse recovery. You don't hear rural mentioned that frequently. Do you find that to be the case? I do. I think we are 
hearing a slightly different tone. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that has to do with the current political makeup, which has a blend of people in power from urban and rural constituencies and from different parties. And so I think we're in a moment where we could really zero in on a economic recovery that is inclusive. I've heard from folks across the aisle in Congress and in the Senate mm -hmm. uh, and in governor's offices about strategies that can make sure that we're not leaving 70% of the nation's land mass behind. So I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. It doesn't mean we can let up in sharing the history and the lessons learned from 2008 and also looking at the kind of strategies that we and many others have been engaged in over the last several years to try to change that story. And this is the moment where those kinds of investments, whether it's in a universal broadband program or an investment in entrepreneurship and innovation strategies in rural places, or some of the work that we've also been accelerating, which is on training folks in rural places on how to be effective remote workers, mm -hmm. using the tools of remote work, and then helping them to apply for jobs that may not be based in their region, but that they can do effectively from either home or eventually from a cool co-work space in a downtown. And then on the entrepreneurship side, the Economic Development Administration stepped up two years ago and have been working with us to help make sure that smaller communities know that there are resources available to them to support entrepreneurship and scalable entrepreneurship in their communities and to work with them on those strategies and eventually apply for those resources and identify matching resources so that they can get on a pathway for a resilient economy that can be successful in the face of a pandemic, ongoing automation, or the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. And that work has never been more important. And there are a lot of indicators that there will continue to be acceleration of that kind of investment. What we're also seeing at the state level is a number of governors launching rural economic offices. Those existed 30, 40 years ago. Strangely, they went away during the early 2000s, both in government as well as at major foundations like the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller. They used to have rural teams and then they got rid of them and even Brookings and Fannie Mae. And they are now standing those back up. And again, it is heartening to see because I think if people understand both the current situation that rural places are in now, but most importantly, the potential, if we unlock the capacity of rural communities and rural people to be able to create an economy that is more inclusive, more distributed, and more resilient. Yeah, makes for a healthier nation. Tell us about your website and tell listeners what you got there, including a little bit about those maps. Sure. So our website is ruralinnovation.us, and it is a resource center 
It highlights the kind of work that we're doing, certainly, but it also has toolkits for communities and change agents in those communities who want to build inclusive digital economy ecosystems. We do a lot of work on the ground in technical assistance, helping communities in person, but we wanted to make sure that any community would have access to those kinds of resources to see the, the best practices of identifying assets, how to pull them together, and how to build entrepreneurship centers, co-work spaces, all those kinds of things. Right. Uh, what we also did was a lot of data and data analytics, and we are continuing to build out that capacity. And so one of the things that we had funded by the Siegel Family Endowment, Walmart Foundation, MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, and Rural Lisk was the Rural Opportunity Map. Now, the Rural Opportunity Map is not just one map that solves all kinds of problems and gives you infinite insight. It's actually a platform. And it's allowed us to generate a number of different data analytic tools and data visualization tools that people can use depending on what they're looking for. And it gave us the capacity to build mapping tools that allow for people to look at healthcare capacity and the risk for employment, but it also allows for people to see where there is already fiber to the home in rural places, where there are opportunity zones that can allow capital that's invested to go further, where there is proximity to institutions of, of higher education that can allow for some communities to be able to get tech transfer businesses started, access the student body as they're coming out in internships and apprenticeships and, and employment, and even things like trailing spouses. For any college president in a rural place, one of their biggest concerns when they're recruiting faculty is, what is that faculty spouse going to do? Mm -hmm. And that can also be a huge asset. And so trying to set up the kind of information to be intentional about that, but also to allow for economic development directors in these rural places to have access to better data to understand their community and context, to be able to do the kinds of reports that are necessary to access dollars that are now available through the EDA. In fact, there was a, a huge notice of funds available that got released yesterday, but you need to have this data in order to be able to comply with those applications. And what we're trying to do is just make access to that information as easy as possible, particularly for these smaller economic development groups who work incredibly hard in rural places and can benefit from that kind of data set in a way that a larger community might have in-house. Good stuff. Well, I want to thank you, Matt, for taking the time to be with us today. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program. Denver, thank you, and thank you for covering these important issues.